This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Today on CityCast Denver is brought to you by Tecovis. Can 650 yellow vest-wearing helpers save downtown from its hellscape reputation? Mayor Mike Johnston and the Downtown Denver Partnership certainly think so. And what's the best way for the city to support the arts? The mayor's got some new ideas on that, too. And we're going to break them down along with all the other stories that matter from this wild, wild week. And stick around to the end for our very last Tecovis tip for Western Week. Today is Friday, January 12th. I'm Paul Caroli, and here's what Denver's talking about. Welcome back to CityCast Denver, the city that's getting a second chance at being scammed by the immersive Japanese convenience store, Konbini Denver. That's right, Bree. we have to talk about it. I got a press release yesterday. The creator. This goes under Paul's things. This is a pulse thing that has been bothering you. I didn't realize it was going to be one of my things, but the people have to know. You know, there's probably going to be more articles about it, and they're going to have that same picture that makes it look awesome, that makes it look something like you really want to go see. It looks like a dystopian convenience store. Justine, do you know about this convenience? Yes. I was, I think it was on that episode when we talked about because. I had mentioned my obsession with all these TikTok videos yes. about Japanese convenience stores and the fluffy egg sandwiches and stuff. Yeah. So I was really excited for that. And I was disappointed when you reported back that mm-hmm. it was whack. Total yeah. BS. Yeah. So well, I'm, it's coming back. If you want to see how whack it is in person. See if they can improve. Uh, based on the press release, I seriously doubt it. There were six pictures attached. <laughs> Only two of them were from the actual thing. And they were very close ups of like Tic Tac or uh, Kit Kats. Um, so I know this is, yeah. So creator Jeff Fireberg, I'm putting you on blast. Um, scammer. about white. Yes, 100%, definitely. <laughs> it's coming to the Source Market Hall. Um, Perfect. Do not, do not go. Perfect do location go. for it, Justine. The Source. Oh my goodness. You know what? Just walk up the street, go to Pacific Mercantile Mart, right? and you can have your A own Japanese experience. convenience store experience with so many awesome products. Perfect, perfect Local point. business. Excellent too. point. I'm sure that's where he got these Kit Kat bars, too. <laughs> Just cut out the middleman. Um, anyway, it's Friday. Uh, we're back at the beautiful Tacova store, Gorgeous. smelling all the beautiful leather. Saw a new boot I want already. Baby blue cowboy boots. You want to make a statement? I'm walking in in those. Gorgeous. <laughs> the, those... Those look pretty sharp. Um, you've heard her voice. Our our uh, politics and green chili correspondent Justine Sandoval is back with us. Hey, Justine, howdy. Howdy. Uh, what what's grabbing you here in the store? What's jumping out? I mean, all of it. But there are some silver cowfolk boots behind me, and I am all about them. <laughs> you know, Justine. Before we um before we get into our uh, our big story of the day here, I wanted to ask you about the uh, the legislature because the state legislature is back in session as of Wednesday this week. There's some fireworks in the room, seemed like. Did you did you follow this? Um, I did. I saw that there were some uh, protests to open up mm-hmm. the state legislature. Uh, I think that was expected. There was a lot of those types of actions all over the country. Um, hmm. And that, that's been kind of a standard, I think, for um, 
the protests that were going on in the gallery. It's really interesting because a lot of people are worried about, you know, the actual legislators and their colleagues getting along on day one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that was interesting. I'll be interested to see how that plays out when we talk about this idea of quote, decorum, right? Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. We're going to see how it's going to go moving forward. I did see a lot of articles and posts from our different elected officials that seem really optimistic and they have some really ambitious plans going forward um, for this session. So I'm going to put my faith in our elected leaders that they can um, work together and, you know, help the people of Colorado. Just, Justine, before we move on, let me ask you a question about those protests in other states. Are they all over Gaza or is it just like a decorum issue across the country? No, um, a lot of the protests that have popped up are uh, pro-Palestine protests. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, that's been the the protests, the pro-Palestine protests all across the country, mm-hmm. you know, have there was just recently at, during Joe Biden's speech, there was a lot of controversy about that protest erupting um, at the um, church in God, what's the name of the church? I don't want to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, in Charleston, the church where the shooting happened. Yeah, Mm. there were Palestinian, um, pro-Palestinian protesters there, and there was a lot of controversy around the disruption um, during that moment. But yeah, these protests have been popping up all over the country, and you know. People are really concerned. Um, This is like one of those issues that's going to keep growing and become a huge issue to discuss and moving forward in the United States role in the conflict in the Middle East, especially, you know, going into the presidential election. I mean, how U.S.'s role in that situation going forward makes a big difference if like Trump is the president or Biden is the president again. Um, Although, I mean, they definitely both love Israel and would continue to support it in the way that that we have. But uh, I don't know. The fact that it is lingering and is going to be part of the debate is is interesting. Yeah. I would not have expected that, you know, a few months ago. Um, Let's get into our top story, which is uh, the hottest fashion trend of the new year is here. It is the yellow puffer vest. Um, But seriously, the yellow vests are just one part of Mayor Mike Johnston's newly announced plan to bring back some life to downtown. Uh, His latest effort, really, he's been he's been talking about this for a while. Um, But specifically this week, he uh, in partnership with the downtown Denver partnership, uh, which represents the business community, um, they're rolling out a new app clean and safe uh, to handle complaints about unhoused folks and security and other issues downtown. Um, They're hoping to speed up response times for all sorts of complaints. Um, And they're uh, appointing 650 Denver ambassadors who are going to be wearing these yellow vests. Um, It's going to be a mix of city workers, private security, nonprofit outreach workers and others to basically like help folks. And I I, I don't know, Brie, what's your take on this Denver ambassadors thing? I mean, it's nothing new. This is Playbook 101 uh, business improvement district work. This is what business Mm -hmm. improvement districts do is often implement, quote, clean and safe programs, which are um, basically, I mean, I think they see them as eyes on the street. They're also people that deal with trash issues, vandalism issues. In this case, uh, this widespread use of the the vest to cover all these different types of people Mm. is something I've not necessarily seen before. I don't quite understand the purpose, I guess I would say. And also it's not a puffer vest fall. I think it's a fleece vest. Oh, you think? I'm pretty sure this. it might be a combo. I think there might be some puff and some fleece. Cause they're a Cotopaxi. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I have a lot of, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I don't, Justine, what is your, what is your initial takeaway? When so you this? <laughs> my first 
thought was I'm gonna be honest was narc vibes um <laughs> and I think it's it's the narc vibes thing not that we don't need eyes on the street and helpers on the street I just think that because of my experiences seeing private security companies and their bad behavior towards unhoused citizens um you know we've had lots of situations where we had the RTD private security who beat a man in the bathroom um you know and I also have there's the private security around my neighborhood that people hire it's like some what they range patrol yeah they have Mm -hmm. the uh, Punisher logo on there in your neighborhood yeah and I think it's because uh some of the business around there hire them to like you know get people off their property but I'll see them in my alley sometimes and I'm like get out of here narc but uh just because that kind of bothers me because I think it empowers like these vigilantes who don't see them who don't see themselves going out and being helpful but more like punishing unhoused people so that was my initial thought but I also do think that you know we do need helpers and we need eyes on the street the thing is if someone sees something they report it where how strong or how good are those services to be able to come in and get what needs to be done you know at certain hours of the night if someone's having uh you know an unhoused person is having a, a crisis outside your home or near you like who do you really call there's not like a 24-hour star program so i that's one of my worries too like these people are out doing that but do we have the resources to fill in like what they're calling for I think you all are touching on something interesting with this quasi-public-private part system, yes. aspect of it. And, and uh, Denverite, our friends at Denverite really highlighted that in their coverage. And I think that does bring up um, accountability questions, you know, because you're always going to have a bad apple in a big program like this. But w- what happens when a private security person wearing a yellow vest does something bad? You know, are they going to be held to the same standards as a police officer? You know, s- say what you will about those standards, but there are some, you know, and I don't know if, I don't know if the same can be said about this. Well, and I think it just speaks to this illusion of security or illusion of safety, which is a lot of what safety is. It's how you, who is being protected or who is perceived as being protected. And that's what I think about when I think about these sort of clean and safe programs is like, we heard all the racket from folks downtown and that group clean and safe Denver or whatever. Mm -hmm. This is what they wanted. And I just don't know if it's actually serving the real issues downtown like can we just get some public restrooms can we get some can we look talk again about the safe injection site conversation because this is something that comes up over and over and over again in these conversations is i don't want to see people doing drugs i I, I agree i don't want to see people doing drugs either i don't want those people to be having to do drugs outside the thing is they're going to be doing drugs so there are opportunities that we could have that would bring that activity off the street and we refuse to look at them and this feels like a band-aid for those deeper issues but but the illusion though the illusion that's like you're kind of writing that off but i feel like the perception of downtown's problems is part of the problem you know, people talk about it being scary, who? but it's just, sure. yeah, I mean, that's exactly like the people who say that it's scary maybe haven't been down there, but maybe this is going to help them feel more comfortable. Yeah. I think maybe just because I live, you know, downtown sure. and thick of it, I don't see this like alarm that there's no one going downtown because trust me, they are everywhere <laughs> all weekend long. You know, there's lots of tourism coming through my, my area. So I kind of like, I don't see the alarm, but then I do go to 16th street mall and it's mostly just like shuttered businesses at this point. So, you know, I don't think downtown is like this place that nobody wants to go. It's just the mall really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That's a good point. It just, this approach too just felt like deja vu to me. This is a long time function of the downtown Denver partnership 
which feels to me like an extension of the government, which it is not. Yeah. Um, and it reminded me a lot of a conversation that there was a big press conference in fall of 2022 with Hancock and the DDP rolled out this compassionate crackdown approach. And they were like, we're going to hire a bunch more police officers. It was like the same conversation we're still having and we're still having the same problems. Yeah. So I just don't see how this is going to solve that same issue this kind of reminded me this could be good in a way like the guardian angels do you remember the oh guardian angels walking I down do. callbacks all the time and they were a community group that made an impact by you know going out in these red berets and letting people know they were protectors in the community that is different when i see the downtown denver partnership is the one you know well because behind this because they've done a lot of things that i don't agree with i think that are questionable that have been harmful to in-house folks and those types of policies uh, that they've advocated for i don't think have ever actually helped unhoused people it's just been to get them away from their businesses and that's who they represent i mean to be yeah. fair the downtown denver partnership represents business interests and real estate interests so that's who they're working for um but i i like the point about the guardian angels justine because i also i had some really positive interactions with those gentlemen as a teenager and, and in my early 20s living in capitol hill when you're at 7-eleven at 2 a.m after the bar or whatever those guys are like kind of hanging around to make sure people don't harass you in front of the 7-eleven and they did a great job oh, yeah. i don't know and they and i just felt like they were more like you're saying i felt like they were more community oriented versus just business oriented. And that's what a lot of this feels like to me is mm. it's protection of businesses, not conversations about the whole picture of the people here. Absolutely. Hmm. I don't know. I, I feel like um, I feel like it depends. You know, the, the, the fact that there's private security involved in this, like, does make it feel a little bit maybe more sinister. But I, I was just reading some folks talking about this online, like people who have ha had experiences with programs like this in other cities and just like really good experiences. Like I guess someone someone I read on um, the Denver subreddit was talking about, um, they shared an anecdote, you know, s someone in Chicago who was wearing a uniform like this, who was just like a smiling face on the street, just a nice warm presence who gave them directions to a great place to eat. And, you know, and that's what Johnston was saying this week. The idea is to make these people identifiable for anyone looking for help whether that's with issues downtown or getting directions to a ball game so like i think it could be it could for some people provide that same thing that you're talking about with the guardian angels but it it could also go in the other direction yeah i think well it remains to be seen paul kind of like what private security's role is here um the yellow vests can we talk oh, about that I know. I as like, a fashion that's really statement the, this really <laughs> the part of this conversation we need to get to because i started seeing photos uh, on social media of this press conference and i was like what is going on and why is everyone wearing this like minions outfit <laughs> and then i was like oh this is the program this is the program this is what they're announcing but let's <laughs> talk outfit. let's talk let's talk about these vests paul Give us some deets. Um, mustard yellow is how I would describe it. I would say it looks good on nobody. Yeah. <laughs> so far. As, as any good, terrible uniform does for mm -hmm. any job you've ever had, it looks bad on everyone. Um, here's what grabbed me. They're Cotopaxi, which is a very popular outdoor apparel brand, <laughs> but it's based in Salt Lake City. <gasps> Come on, Mayor Johnston. Seriously. We got VF Corp right here in Denver. Who makes Call North up Face. your friends at the North Face. Okay, I just want to point out, it's a puffer and a fleece with a fleece patch. Oh. <laughs> what is going on? It's really like reinforcing the... our stereotype about how terrible we dress. Yeah. Do you like the look, Justine? Do you like the style? I mean, it's on brand for Denver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very Denver white, dude. Mm -hmm. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> 
I'm like, how much money did you all spend on these vests? Yeah. All right. Well, we're getting a little uh, alarm from the store. <laughs> Something's happening in here. Uh, I, I think that means it's time for a break. And we're going to go uh, for a little break here from some advertisers and come back with a conversation about the arts. All right, we're back. Uh, so uh, for uh, for a hot topic this week, we're going to dig into this story from our friend uh, John Wenzel at the Denver Post. It's a really great piece about um, Mayor Johnston's approach to the arts community, um, which he hasn't really talked about a lot. He's really been focused on homelessness and a little bit on downtown. But um, so Wenzel got a chance to talk to the mayor, and it seems like it was quite an in-depth interview. I thought this piece was really fascinating. I thought we could pick it apart a little bit. You two are lovers of the arts here. Uh, but let's start with this quote from Johnston. I'm an arts nerd at heart. Bree, do you believe him? I mean, I've run into him at art shows, so I do believe him. You think it's legit? This yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what, let's talk about the quote that was maybe rubbing you the wrong way a little bit or made oh, you okay. think that this was a little bit more of an act. Because I mean, if anything, sure, it's a little bit of a presentation. He's a politician. Yeah. But I would say on the whole, he does love the arts. Yeah. I get that vibe. He named his son Emmett August after August Wilson. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's... That's legit. That's yeah. legitimate. You, you get some points for that. That's real. But here... Okay, so the quote you're talking about, Bree, yeah. is... Um, uh, here it is. So this is just John uh, Wenzel's writing in the Post, a quote. Um, he said he makes a point to read every Pulitzer Prize-winning novel and nonfiction book with a focus on works by BIPOC writers and tries to stay up on Colorado's gallery and museum scenes. He watches every Oscar-nominated movie with his family, he said. He even likes reading plays. You know who we need to ask? Like, doesn't he have like a nine-year-old daughter? She would tell she us would, the truth. Yes. She'd be like, we don't watch all those movies or whatever. It's like he's on his third rewatch of Yellowstone. Yeah, come on. <laughs> we all know what his comfort show is. That's no. where he got the best idea. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that that's a little, that's a little much. Yeah, every Oscar-nominated movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a little rich for me, for sure. However, what I find interesting is something that you said at the top of this, which was he's been focusing more on homelessness, of course. But this is also something that our that this mayor and the mayor previously were talking about. And Justine, I would ask what you think about the fact that our our city does prioritize the arts enough that it's even one of those top five things that they want to talk about. Yeah. Well, in this article, it talked about like 70 something. I don't remember the number. A percent of Dem people attend the arts in Denver. Like we have a very high attendance rate for, you know, all of our arts and venues. And I thought that 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 really reflects, you know, how I grew up in Denver. Same. Denver has always invested in arts and sciences. And I really, you know, was able to participate in that growing up. And it made me a, an adult who now spends my money and my time on the arts in Denver. Yeah. So I think that it's always been a priority for the city and it continues to be. The problem is we have a mayor coming in with a million and one problems yeah. to fix. And I have to give him credit. They are hitting the ground running and they're throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. And, you know, we don't know if it's going to work or not. But I do have faith that the arts will be a priority. And I think it's a piece of solving a lot of the issues that we have in the city, bringing people back downtown. Totally. Invest more in the arts. Yeah. And that seems to be what Johnston's logic is here for, for investing in the arts. And this is another quote from the piece. Uh, a close look at his budget and campaign policies shows there is a bridge between the arts and his plans to revitalize downtown, however. Johnston believes that taking unhoused people off the streets will encourage more would-be audiences to see central Denver concerts and Broadway shows. Um, yeah, so I don't know. That makes sense to me. I, I get the logic of it. But I have to say, like, 
I think this is one of those things that sounds good, but really deserves a closer look. Public financing of the arts specifically, I mean, because like it's all about money from taxpayers supporting things like and we could support the arts in all different ways. You know, Bree, sometimes when we talk about my Canadian heritage, you talk about comedy, our big export. The reason why Canada's comedy scene has been so popular and thriving, I did a little reading on this, is because they have a lot of public support of the arts that they did specifically to promote Canadian culture so it wouldn't be overwhelmed by American voices and English, English, French bilingualism. So like, I don't know. I mean, again, those sound like good things, but like, do we want the government to be controlling art in that way? Like where the money comes from dictates what's acceptable voices, who gets, who gets support are, are people that can play the game, that can appeal to politicians. Like maybe we'd be better off with private support or or nonprofit supporting the arts, private organizations are making those choices too over whose mm-hmm. voices are heard. And I have heard plenty of background stories on galleries not showing things that they feel are too controversial when we're having these conversations about marginalized communities telling real stories. I don't think that's necessarily just a governmental issue. I think that's the art world. Yeah, that's an art world problem. I'm starting to think about you know rhino and crush walls and how that whole situation went down it was like private money fundraisers that did it and then when the city got involved you know they spent a lot of money to bring like a shepherd fairy mural (laughs) and it was like a mural it was just like it was like like, weird it was like whatever you could have spent like the 90 million dollars that they (laughs) spent on it on investing in local artists um so yeah i think about things like that when you have the private and the the Denver money coming in, it can create like blandness. But, but yeah. also, like, where's the revolutionary? Yeah. Are we squashing the revolutionary art, the DIY community? Did Rhinoceropolis breathe the DIY space? You you like to talk it's about? Did they ever there. get any public money? Uh, you know what? I don't know if they did through the Safe Spaces program or not, which was an ad direct. Uh, outgrowth of the ghost ship fire evictions across the country of artists in places like Rhinoceropolis. And actually, I have heard from folks that since that happened, um, the city has actually been more cooperative with art spaces and figuring out how to get them up to code and make them safer. And D3 in Westwood is a great example of that. So they're, they're able to actually be out in the public soliciting money and donations from folks, as well as getting support from the city to be a legal functioning venue. So it actually did help folks in the long run. I think the struggle with the Rhinoceropolis issue was that was an eviction of 10 people into the middle of winter. We haven't solved the housing problem, which is something that the that I think needs a closer look from the city. But something I want to say, Paul, is uh, Red Rocks is a city owned venue. That thing brings in millions and millions and millions of dollars every year. We have a 1% for the arts tax, which is how we get public art, which I would say some of it is not controversial, but at least speaks to the community in in a deeper way than I would expect sometimes public art to be. It's not totally sanitized. So I hear I hear that because I'm not going to say yeehaw, the government should control art. But I think that we have an OK track record of it getting progressively a little bit better. Um, well, let's talk about some of the moves that Johnston has made specifically on the arts. Um, he, you know, in his budget for 24, he's actually decreased uh, funding for Denver Arts and Venues. They're getting $67.6 million this year, which is a little bit less than last year the former mayor, uh, Michael Hancock, gave. Um, another one, maybe maybe this is something that's uh, more meaningful to you, Bree or Justine, but I didn't really, you know, I don't know these people, but uh 
Johnston has hired a new director for arts and venues. Out is Ginger White Brunetti, who who led the department for a long time. In is Gretchen Holra. Hora, mm-hmm. who, who I wasn't familiar with, Brie? I wasn't familiar with her either, but I did check in with some of my folks behind the scenes. And I guess she's kind of a finance person. Mm, and that, okay. I guess, was the struggle here was there was some financial stuff happening. It, the city owns a lot of real estate related to the arts. And it sounded like there was some issues with how things were being managed and they just needed to sort of get things together. This is like not like she's a fixer, but kind of like she's not an arts person. That was my initial concern was like, cool, someone who's not involved with the arts running the arts program. But it sounds like this may be an interim person and we may get somebody more directly connected to the arts. The thing with um, Ginger being out, Ginger White Bernetti, who was who was in that position for a long time. This is an appointed position. Mayors make changes in appointments all the time. This is a new government they made a change and that was the decision. I mean, I have my own feelings about that situation, but it, it, I, I just ultimately see it as a decision by the mayor to appoint somebody new. What are your feelings? I don't want to talk about that <laughs> <show>. <laughs> Too many personal problems okay. related to Fair the, related to the ghost enough. ship stuff. So, uh, Justine, any thoughts on the new appointee? No, I initially saw it the same way as, you know, administrations turn over people, appoint you know, there are people. And from what I had gathered, too, is more of like uh, bringing the money person in, the fixer, to make sure that the arts are going to be sustainable. Mm. Um, yeah. You know how I found out more information on the DCPA's ownership of Denver is after the Bober incident. Oh, people yeah? were like, it's a private place. And I was like, pretty sure it's public. So I had to look it up. And then I saw how, you know, Denver, Denver owns the venue and they manage the venue. Yeah, it's complicated yeah. for sure, but it is. <laughs> but it is a public space. It's part of our real estate portfolio. <laughs> right. And I think the DCBA is a great example, though, of this old versus new conversation that is the struggle with arts right now, which is, I mean, the DCPA, I think their average ticket holder age is pretty, it's on the mature side. And there isn't a lot of things um, there currently that feel attractive to younger f- people and it's an incredible space with tons of venues and opportunities and I still think it's an underutilized space for Denver. The performing arts complex yeah, absolutely. downtown? absolutely. Mm-hmm. For arts. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite places in it's the whole a, city. It's a beautiful space but I don't feel like there's enough sometimes down there to bring yeah. new people into it who don't have the experiences that we have growing up going to it. You know? Yeah. I think mean, and it's gotten expensive too. Well, mm-hmm. for sure. Just like everything's gotten expensive but you know I just remember remember as a kid going with my mom to see plays go see Annie that was my first play ever at the DCPA um but you know it's hard financially to take your kids down and the whole experience of going downtown can be costly so you know however we can make the arts more accessible I think to regular citizens is is vital Hmm. what I like about it is um it's like one of the only places in the city where people dress up you know, look nice, go out for a nice night on the town, maybe wear a suit and tie or a nice dress. It's like, I I love that. I love like a nice formal evening sometimes. It's fun. Yeah. That's how I learned that growing up too. We got dressed up to go to the theater and I learned about like different dress codes for different events. (laughs) And I I do just want to, I don't want to undermine the work that the DCPA has done to evolve because I'm thinking now about Charlie Miller and Emily Tarquin who were doing really cool stuff in the Jones Theater space. The immersive and like the more experimental. Well, eventually, Yeah, yeah. yeah, they brought in like Charlie brought in theater of the mind and he's the reason we you know the david byrne connection happened here that's pretty cool so it's not that they're not trying i just think there's more opportunities even to utilize local artists and that space that open space it's a giant cavernous space let's do cooler let's do more cool stuff down there 
Um, something else Johnston has said he wants to do, um, and maybe this speaks more on the housing, uh, from the article, uh, quote, Johnston wants to create a campus to house a permanent artist in residence program, which would offset the high rents, forcing out artists and keeping new ones from moving here. Um, he would give them a roof and a stipend and connect them with citywide canvases, literal or figurative to share their work. The city would play the role of business agent, promoting the artists and making sure people see their art. Uh, apparently, he also says he wants to start a city-run book club. Those are the other two specifics that I saw in there. I love this idea. Um, Mayor Johnston, reach out to me. I'd love to connect you with artists to give you a perspective on what's actually needed in an actual residential space for artists. Um, because there's just so many things that I think are missed opportunities when we do these artist-in-residence things. But I love the idea. I hope that it happens. We had this great idea called Art Space that was supposed to come to the area known as Rhino and be affordable housing for artists. That deal fell through. If we can see one of these all the way through, I'll, I'll see it when I believe it. I mean, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, I think that would be spectacular. And that's an awesome idea. I've seen other cities in the past. I think Detroit did something like this where they were inviting artists to come in. There was an abundance of feral houses, though, that we could buy for super cheap. Totally different economy, but, for sure. Yeah. So that's the thing. Like, we have a shortage of housing here, so there's a whole other element of building that housing or finding it. But, yeah, I saw that in Detroit where they were inviting artists in to work and live in these collectives, buy houses really cheap, get all of this grant and funding to build these art collectives in Detroit, which I thought was a really cool concept. Which is the thing that I think is more happening, not exactly that, but that's happening in the San Luis Valley right now. I read this great yes. piece this oh, really? week in the Colorado mm-hmm. Sun. My friend Lattice lives down there. And a lot of artists are moving down there because it's affordable and grant programs are sort of following them. And <clears throat> there's just been a lot of conversation around how those artists incorporate themselves into the community that already exists. And it sounds like what's happening in the San Luis Valley is a great model. Well, interesting. Um Book club? Do we want to comment on the book club? I feel like that's like, I mean, this kind of stuff has happened before. Who's doing that? Who's reading a book that the city is picking? What city, kind of book was the city, city employees? Pick? Did we have city a book employee. club before? Like a city read where we'd all read a book? Mm-hmm. It was I, like yeah, book I don't think it's a new concept. Yeah. But. No, every book club I've ever joined, I've never read the book. So. <laughs> And I was like, I'm not the person to comment. I've never been in a book club, so I don't read. So. Maybe if the city would provide uh, some, you know, the bottles of wine for the meeting at the end of the month. You know, some food. You know, hang out. Yeah. yeah. about that? I like it. Um, all right. I think that's a pretty good place to end this segment. We're going to take another break and be back with wins and fails. All right. We're back. It's time for wins and fails, a.k.a. Rocky Mountain highs and lows. Each of us has brought a recent local something. Maybe a news story, maybe just something we saw on the street that we thought is a win and something we thought is a fail. Fails and wins of the week. Let's do fails first. Justine, you want to take us away? Um, so my fail of the week comes from an article I read um, in the Denver Post about Colorado's quiet killer. And it said that alcohol ends more lives than overdoses um, here in Colorado. And there's been no intervention. And in fact, we've had a drinking death spike during the pandemic. And there's been no... No, nothing to address that. Um, and we've actually made alcohol more accessible by putting it in grocery stores and gas stations now. So that's something that I, I saw um, that really alarmed me because growing up here, I did grow up a lot. My family has a bar. Right. <laughs> I worked in the bar industry for many years and it's a tough line to ride for a lot of people um, because drinking is very much a part of Colorado culture, um, beer and whiskey and, you know, 
we like we like our drinks tailgating part pre-partying concerts i mean it's it's then it's every oh yeah around everything you know we have two gigantic breweries here and (laughs) they provide coors light to the rest of the country so it's very much part of the culture and i think that it's worth looking into about how we consume responsibly and what resources we have um you know having my own personal struggles (laughs) dealing with alcohol i can see that you know it can be it can be tricky and i think that we need to have more resources as a community to help people avoid getting into you know um to drugs and alcohol as a way to cope with other issues sure and so i think that that's something we should look at as a society well and this was a great four-part series from the post from uh meg wingerter it was this great just like different looks at this issue and as a person in recovery for almost 18 years, um, something that struck me in one of these pieces was the loneliness that folks feel once they want to quit drinking and they have trouble finding a social space where they can either keep the friends they had or create new ones. And it's one of the keys to my recovery was my friend group immediately came under me and started supporting me to help me because they saw that I was struggling with something. And I don't think everybody has that support. And so I think it's a big social it's something that we can help each other with in more ways than we think we can. Absolutely. You know, something about the article, because um, I've been thinking about this one too, it's like just the, the fact that they reframed it and put the alcohol deaths up against the, the overdose the deaths, fentanyl yeah. death. the fentanyl yeah. deaths, and like the way the fentanyl has been such a focus for um, our politicians, our legislators the last couple of years, and yet alcohol, like it never is. And then in the article, they were quoting some of these legislators like, are you going to look at alcohol are we going to talk about like limiting access or increasing taxes and they were just like i don't think so because <laughs> that's not i don't know if that's what people want well you know, i think people like alcohol well, remember that they try to shut down liquor stores for like eight hours <laughs> during the, the pandemic right. and people freaked out i mean it's acceptable addiction when you are struggling with addiction and there's something that's going to help you and there's a liquor store at every corner, it's mm. a lot easier to get a purse full of shooters than it is maybe a purse full of heroin. Yeah. Um, so people don't realize how accessible of a drug it is. Yeah. All right. Uh, Bree, do you want to go next? What's your fail of the week? Yeah, my feels less. It's more of a just a low or a sad moment. Um, my great uncle John Litz passed away recently and I just wanted to give his work and legacy a shout out. Um, he was a pioneering co-founder of Plan Jeffco, which is the group that authored the uh, 1972 Open Space Resolution Ballot Initiative that put um, one half of, of a percent sales tax in Jefferson County to establish their open space program. Oh, interesting. And um, my uncle John was a passionate uh, advocate for conservation and open space for more than 50 years. And um, he helped preserve thousands of acres in Jeffco for everybody to use, including sort of natural environments. And um, he was so prolific in this space. He's, he was a metallurgical engineer by trade. I also he had 16 patents. I had no idea. Huh. Wow. He wrote a bunch of pieces about the work that he did in engineering. But on the side, he was a conservationist. And he was so devoted to Jeffco that their most prestigious award that they give out in every year for conservation is the John Litz Award named after him oh my god i had no i didn't know how i I always knew him as like my uncle that worked in conservation and Mm. he traveled all over the world to learn about different ecologies and he was traveling up through his 80s sharp as a tack fascinating dude but um i just want to give my family members a shout out my my cousins uh kari kirsten denise cheyenne becca and dominic i'm so sorry 
You lost your amazing dad and grandpa, but his legacy will live on in Colorado in such a cool way. So. Wow. What a, what a story. What a life. Yeah. Really cool guy. Really cool. That's amazing. I utilize a lot of Jeff Goh's outdoor space. So now I'm going to always think of him. Yeah, when I'm my there. Uncle John was, was pivotal in making that happen and preserving it and growing it over 50 years. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, quite a legacy. What about you, Paul? Well, mine actually is also about a Jeff Co. open space. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I know. It's weird Thanks, coincidence. Uncle John. <laughs> um, technically not managed by Jeff Co., um, but Rocky Flats. You know, Rocky Flats, the former nuclear power plant um, that was uh, cleaned up and now reopened as a wildlife refuge. Uh, it was in the news again this week. Um, the headlines paint a scary picture, as they always do. This is the one from the Denver Post. Colorado environmental groups file federal lawsuit to halt Rocky Flats Trail. Um, the trail in question is a hiking trail. Uh, they, they're looking at building a new one. They have a whole network of trails, and there was a, an interpretation center plan to be built. But these activists continue to fight every little step that the uh, the government wants to do here in this beautiful open space. Um, yeah, so I know this is an unpopular opinion. I know a lot of people are afraid of Rocky Flats and the idea of radiation, but you know the stories this week, like they always do, neglect to offer the health department or any any voice on the science from the scientific consensus on the subject of low levels of radiation. Um, and so I feel like this is a huge fail for journalism, like perpetually, like every time Rocky Flats comes up, it's always this both sidesism. If the if the official side is even offered the the chance, you know, I looked at all three articles that were written about this this week, Denver 7, Fox 31, Denver Post, every single one of them the only quotes they included were from the press release that I also got from this coalition of activist groups. And I think it's shoddy journalism. And it's allowing this negative view of Rocky Flats, which in my opinion is a beautiful success story of ecological restoration, to be totally papered over and missed. And we're just not, we're not like understanding that this is a point of pride for our community. We're treating it with fear because of our, I don't know, our Cold War, you know, what, what Rocky Flats used to be, you know, yes, it used to be a dirty plant with, uh, that was very secretive and had a lot of issues, but it is not that anymore. And we have to talk about the success, success story. So that's my fail. This is a Colorado problem. I think sometimes is we don't want to tell a new story. Yeah. Good or I bad, so. we don't want to tell a new story. And so... Um, I do agree. It's on us as journalists to go beyond a press. I mean, go beyond a press release. It's terrible. You've got to talk to somebody else. Well, this had been a discussion too. I think I saw it on John Oliver, good old John Oliver, <laughs> right. about press uh, media being lazy when it comes to press releases because they would just use the press releases from the police. Oh, and totally. Yeah, they'd feed the story, and like when you got deeper into the story, it was like way more complicated than. Yeah. Guys. Well, and a press release is created to present the press with the narrative. It's the journalist's yeah. job to go around or outside of that narrative and figure out if there's something else happening there. Yeah. And in this case, the press release told the story about scary radiation and how any amount of radiation creates risk and health risks for the community. But what it doesn't say is that the cleanup was much more conservative than federal standards even required and that these hiking trails are, in fact, quite safe. 
which could be a helpful story for other communities across the country who haven't had this restoration done and say, this is how successful it can be if you look at how deep we went with this. Um, anyway, I, I, I did a huge project on Rocky Flats. I'll, I'll put a link into it. I went way beyond the press release and uh, talked to all sorts of people, you know, health, health physicists, scientists, um, people who have not no, no personal connection to the story, no biases built in. Um, fascinating project. I, I do encourage people to, to look into it further if you're interested or if you've ever caught yourself thinking, Rocky Flats, ooh, scary. That's for you. <laughs> um, all right, let's do go to our wins. Let's go to our wins. Justine, you want to give us a win? Okay. My win is very exciting, and it is um, that paid family leave is now officially available in Colorado. Yay! Uh, so back in 2020, the voters of Colorado passed Proposition 118, which was a ballot measure for uh, – up to 12 weeks of paid family medical leave um, that's funded through a payroll tax that's paid by 50, 50 by employees and their employer that goes into a large general fund that pays people out when they file their claim for this um, paid time off. So it's really exciting because uh, last year it went to effect that they were collecting the money and this year people can actually file claims for the money. And hmm. it's a big deal because a lot of people, if you've ever had a, a child, you know that there is no mandatory maternity leave. Yeah. The United States is the only developed nation um, that does not have mandatory maternity leave, more or less paid huh. maternity leave. Yeah. No. P people are expected. There are companies that expect people to go back to work within a week or two. Which is of having, of having a bananas child. to me as a person that has produced a human being. Yeah. Like not only is your body physically not ready, mentally it's like I just birthed a human. The world is different. I need help. Not I need to go back to my go back. job. <laughs> so it's incredible that this is an opportunity. Yeah. Because and as a person that benefited from maternity leave through my job here at CityCast, I know plenty of other people that didn't have that opportunity. Absolutely. And if you have they do give you the time off. A lot of times it's unpaid. Yeah. So you're getting time off. But, you know, if you have to support your family or one income is going to be gone or you're the sole yeah. provider. If anything, it costs more now. All of a sudden you have another person in your life. Exactly. So this That's is great. big. Um, I think that it's. Um, going to be really beneficial to people of Colorado. And it also includes not just, you know, maternity leave, but if you have a health issue, um, if you adopt, there's also leave there for adoptions, hmm. um, for family deaths. Well, and I think that's a good point because it's not just about maternity leave, like you're saying. Yeah. Some I think about friends who's, um, they had a parent who was all of a sudden sick or in hospice and they needed to take time off or they have a kid who has a health issue that is like, you know, I had a friend whose kid was in the hospital for months with a heart condition. If you can't take some of that time to be with them, it just like upends your whole life. Oh, absolutely. My mom had a major heart surgery a few years ago. And, you know, I don't have children or anything, but I needed to take that time off yeah. and take care of my family. And I was so happy I worked for an organization that provided that and let me take care of my family. And it makes better employees. So sure. I think this win for Colorado. Um, it's should be very beneficial for people and it'll be a good standard moving forward. That's a great win. That's a great win, Justine. Um, I'll go next. I got a short one. Same. Go ahead. And uh, I mean, it, it's a big one. It's something that our congressional delegation, both both sides of the aisle, both Republicans and Democrats, have been pushing for for months. Um, since last year, the IRS suggested that they might tax Coloradans' Tabor tax refunds. 
Um, so we got these those seven hundred fifty dollar checks in the mail. Um, I, the IRS was wishy washy about whether or not they were going to tax them, and apparently this week the um, IRS reps told uh, Senator Michael Bennett and Governor Jared Polis they had a meeting that they have they have made up their minds they are not taxing Tabor refunds this year. Cool. Yeah. So we get our whole Tabor so, refund. So we get the whole the whole Tabor refund, um, which this year is going to be eight hundred dollars, um, and it's not coming in a check. It's just going to go through the regular tax f- refund process. You know, say what you will about our messed up taxes and whether or not these Tabor refunds should even exist. I yeah. will say a lot about that personally, um, but the fact that the IRS is not going to tax them is like more money for us. That's great. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, yeah. I didn't get mine. You didn't get your really? Tabor refund. No. The state of Colorado took it back oh. to pay for, I think it was parking tickets at a Raria higher education <laughs> facility. So I was like, what the? They're like, sorry. <laughs> so, you should have been paying for parking when you were at school. Oh, my God. This parking. Anyone who went to school on that campus oh knows God, the pain. So and I'm sure in parking. some of you also got your $750 taken away <laughs> by AHEC. <laughs> That's too uh, funny, Justine. Yeah, I was shocked. I was like, what They took the, the whole thing? You didn't get anything? I got a letter saying that they took it. <laughs> <laughs> um, At least you still have your car. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, I don't know if there's an upside to this. Yeah. Um, I'll go my yes, last. Please, quick, uh, the Colorado plastic bag ban went into effect at the beginning mm. of this year. Initially, I was like, you go to Target and you're like, I'm here to get my plastic target bags their bags their plastic bags are amazing everybody knows it's different than like when you go to king supers and as my friend kia says i've never met a king supers bag that doesn't have a hole in it <laughs> but true. target had high quality bags and then i was like oh, oh, oh i have to use my own bags and then i brought my own bags next time and i was like this is awesome these changes are awesome to see in real life like legislation happens often we don't think about what the next step is it's just a change in behavior it's it's great i think it's something so easy and we're, I don't know, it's just, a, I think it'll have a big impact and we can all do it. Not by choice, but we can do it. Yeah. Just, oh, what am I going to clean out my cat's litter box with now? How am I going to get I was thinking about this. They have those compostable doggy poop bags. You could just use one of those. Oh, okay. I mean, I have a couple decades worth inside <laughs> another bag under my up. sink. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I do have several bags of bags as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, here we are at the end of the show. Wow, we did it. Another week, another week in the books. Uh, Justine, Bree, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Hey, I'm Bree Davies, and I'm here with newsletter editor Adrian Gonzalez. Hey, Adrian. Good morning, Bree. It's Western Week here at CityCast Denver, and we've got another Tacovas tip. Adrian, what have you got? All right, today's Tacovas tip is how to choose the right hat for you. So, you're interested in Western wear, you're cowboy curious, as I call it, and you're ready to buy a, a cowboy hat. The first thing to, to think about is form and function. I think they can coexist. So what you don't want to do is ever buy something that's going to make you uncomfortable. You're going to walk into a room and feel like you're in a costume. And so trying things on is really important. I know Tacovas has a couple of great options, right? And for here, the weather in Denver, you want to have a felt hat during the winter months, it keeps you a little bit warmer. But when it comes to the summer, I can tell you from experience that, for example, this felt hat that I'm wearing today gets super hot. I'm a little sweaty. So you want to spring for the straw hat in the summer months. Okay. It'll keep you cool and you look cool. Thanks for joining us, Adrian. Thanks, Bree. Step into a new pair of Tacovas for wherever your journey takes you. And remember, don't go gently. Ah! 
That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. Our producers this week were me, Paul Caroli, Lizzie Goldsmith, and Olivia Jewell-Love. Peyton Garcia and Adrian Gonzalez write our morning newsletter, Hey Denver. Bree Davies is our host. Our fact checker this week was Bree's Aunt Erin. Thanks, Aaron. Our music is by Los Mocochetes, with additional mixing by Tyler Lindgren. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, follow us on Instagram at CityCast Denver, and tell someone in a yellow vest about us the next time you see them. You can sign up for that daily newsletter and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. We're off on Monday for MLK Junior Day, but we'll be back in your feeds Tuesday morning with a brand new episode. See you then. Why are we all hoarders about bags? <laughs> well, you're going to need them sometime. You might I want have them. I such a bag hoard. It's, I have like a whole closet for Didn't bags. Have a big I line enough bag the hoard. trash cans, the bathroom trash cans with them. Well, I think the other uh, thing is you start to realize I don't really need to line this trash can. Yeah. I can just rinse it out.